In this episode, Emil Kenziora from Tomorrow by Stasis and 2021 Foresight Fellow and Ashwin DeWolf discuss cryonics. From why it makes sense to sign up, to projects that are currently going on in this space, and to future challenges that have yet to be overcome. You can find written summaries of this meeting on our biotech page at foresight.org and you can apply to join this group in its discussions. If you want to meet foresighters in person, then join our global meetups, co-hosted with a bunch of friends across the world, COVID permitting, on a regular basis. Join our mailing list and social media to stay up to date. And if you like, help us advance flourishing futures by sharing the podcast and the meetups with others who are interested. Enjoy. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's a real pleasure. My name is Arshin Wolf, and like I knew yourself, I'm actually from Europe as well. So I'm actually very thrilled what's going on right now. And although I'm very deeply involved in Elcor is shaping a lot of their technical policies, I'm looking with some mixture of uh, <laughs> admiration and jealousy to what's going on there as well. Um, to my knowledge, actually, Emil and I... Uh, uh, agree on a whole lot of things. I've known him now, like for quite a bit, and we've hang out. But we might be able to uh, to to find some areas where some interesting discussion can be had uh, during the Q and A. So I've been an Elcor member since basically 2002. I think it was Tech the beginning of 2003 that I got my stuff in the mail because there's a whole lot of paperwork, and it's actually my understanding that one of the objectives of Emil's organization is to really slim down and 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 economize on the sign-up process, make it a lot easier. So that's maybe something we can talk about a little later, why people have such a hard time signing up for cryonics. I'm also the CEO of Advanced Neurobiosciences, which is a neural cryobiology research company. So that's a whole mouthful, but basically we study cryopreservation of the brain. We're mostly focused on that. I'm the editor of Elcor's Cryonics Magazine, which is a quarterly publication for, for Elcor members, but is publicly available online, so you can kind of read it. And it's kind of a mixture of technical articles and more promotional things and news items for Elcor. I actually uh, edited a book with uh, Elcor president, ex-Elcor president Stephen Bridge a couple of years ago. It's called Preserving Mind-Saving Lives, and I actually have a copy every year. It's probably the best introduction to cryonics on the market right now so if you don't have a copy or you want to give one to your friends i, I greatly encourage it as like like over the last 20 years the, like the best contributions like to our field whether it's technical social philosophical and so forth that that's a really good book i am the co-author of outdoors cryonics procedures manual and that is basically the most like comprehensive technical manual on how to do Cryonics. Over the years, there have been some manuals that dealt with various subsets of cryonics, but this is the first manual that covers every single part of cryonics. So in a nutshell, it should be possible if you have the right motivation and, and skill sets to take that manual and start a cryonics organization from scratch. <laughs> it has been very pleasing actually to hear that like other people, including some of uh, a meal staff had been assigned that book to like uh, educate themselves. So, and we hope it to be like uh, an online dynamic document. So we keep like updating as time goes by. I'm also the author of the human biostasis protocol. And that is basically a very advanced cryonics protocol that 
hopefully one day can be used when cryonics becomes a medically elective procedure. So when someone's terminally ill, um, a hospital will actually cooperate with cryonics procedures. And then there will be very smooth transition from the terminal critical state of the patients to a cryonics protocol. And of course, right now, that's not really in the cards yet, but I think it would be very good to have a document that really outlines in great detail how chronic would look like under ideal circumstances. So uh, I think uh, that's a, a pretty interesting document. And like the procedures manual, we keep expanding on it and adding supporting authors like from the field of emergency medicine or molecular nanotechnology. I'm also the organizer of Alpro New York. So we have a local group here and I think we're the only chronics group outside of the state where facilities that has its own emergency response vehicle, Elker was acquiring a new one. So I basically backed them to, <laughs> to drive the old vehicle to the New York group and we operated it. And it's good. It's a very active group. And we were supposed to organize the first Quranic's first response training like uh, last year, but because of COVID, that was not really possible. So we had to kind of postpone that, but hopefully soon. And I think that's it in terms of introduction. So I'm going to tell a little bit about the work that my company is doing. So we started in 2008 and we started our company in Portland, Oregon. And when we did that, a lot of people said, well, that, that's just not going to work. You have to go either to the Bay Area or, you know, it's on LA. And I said, well, we don't really want to do that. <laughs> I'm going to do it here. So it was certainly a price to pay because we didn't have any money or funding, but then Yuri Pachugin, the researcher who used to research cryonics protocols at the Cryonics Institute, he left for Russia again. And Ben Best was instrumental in CI donating all their equipment to us. So it was very nice. And then there was an individual CI member named Alan Mole who made some money available to start our research. And then Jordan Sparks, who now is his own cryonics organization called Oregon Cryonics, he was a practicing dentist at the time. And as you may know, like doctor offices or dental offices are actually really ideal like for like small animal kind of research. So we said, well, you can have some space in our lab. And uh, so that's kind of how we started. And in the beginning, we just worked in weekends, so like for nothing. But then gradually, we started contracting with other cryonics organizations like um, Alcor and some like uh, private entities who wanted to do research. And I think the most emphasis in our research we have done is like how does chronics actually what are the the results of a chronics protocol under normal suboptimal conditions because most chronics protocols were developed in a lab in which there is no ischemia there is no delay between circulatory rest and the start of procedures but in chronics that's generally not the rule at all so we were kind of researching what would happen under these different scenarios let's say intervene now or later or two hours, 24 hours of cold ischemia, and what are the things you can do to improve outcomes. And uh, that work has been pretty illuminating, and it also allowed us later to look at Elkhor's comprehensive stabilization medications protocol and to see actually which of these medications are the most effective and which one are not so much. The way we did that is we basically cryoprotected the brain after various periods of delays and they use all these different medications to see if we could improve outcomes. And a lot of these medications did not show really strong like impact, but some of them were really, really powerful, like sodium citrate and heparin. And that was a very good learning 
uh, opportunity, I think, for the community because these, these medications became a lot more important. And we learned a variety of other things, maybe we can talk about it later, that gradually got incorporated like in real cryotics protocols of various cryotics organizations. We also gradually start like collecting our data and putting some papers out. The first paper occurred in 2020 in uh, reoutanation research. And it's basically was the most comprehensive study in what actually happens to the fine structure of the brain after various periods of circulatory arrest. And we look at, looked at it at room temperature or body temperature and at full temperature. And uh, we're looking at electron micrographs. And what we also did is we introduced a deep learning algorithm to see if that algorithm could actually, by just looking at the micrographs, distinguish between different periods of ischemia. So we could say, like, oh, this is three hours after death, or this is six hours, or this is 48 hours at cold temperature. So that, I think, was a pretty a successful study. And it, it goes some way in, in answering the question that people always have. And that is like, well, at what point do you think it's no longer useful to do cryonics. One thing we tried to address in the paper is like, what is information theoretic depth? Can we get give that an, uh, an empirical definition? Can we say like at uh, room temperature or cold, cold temperature, how long does it take for the fine structure to decompose in a way that you can no longer infer the original state? So that was what that paper about. And then we have two other papers lined up. One is about old brain cryopreservation. There are actually almost no papers out on that yet. And the aim of that paper is to just show that it's actually relatively easy to vitrify a brain. You can even do it with relatively low toxicity. And the third paper will be about, and that's kind of an interesting one, to show the ultrastructure of just the straight trees when there's no cryoprotection or vitrification at all, because it's usually assumed that straight trees leads to like very significant damage, maybe even like information theoretical death. And one thing we have found, which is consistent with some like preliminary data that was kind of floating around in community that actually doesn't look too bad at all. And this is still kind of a work in progress and paper still has to be finalized. But I think that's pretty exciting because that, that, that really broadens like the scope, I think, of when chronic still can be a successful procedure. So that's are the three papers that we're kind of working on. One is published now, the other one will be forthcoming soon. We also do some like R&D and contracting with chronic organizations just to to fine-tune the procedures or to, to develop equipment. And one thing we're working on in particular is the development of whole body field crab protection. So field crab protection is basically when you do all of the important chronic procedures remotely including cryoprotected perfusion of the brain. And then you guys ship the patient back on dry ice facility where like long-term cooling and storage happen. And clearly there's a very big advantage of doing it that way because you pretty much eliminate all the kind of cold ischemia that you normally would have if you have to transport someone on ice for like 18 hours or 24 hours. So we're pretty excited about that. I mean, it's it's a pretty significant logistical challenge to create that kind of capability in a vehicle, but we're thinking we're making kind of headway on that. So um, yeah, that's another thing we're doing. And I think one thing I should mention, like another project we started with Elcor quite recently, as some of you may know, if you actually cry protect the brain with a vitrification agent under very ideal circumstances, it leads actually to a lot of shrinking. And one way to get around that is to open the blood-brain barrier with what we call blood-brain barrier modifier. 
And for the last couple of years, we've been looking at how these molecules work. And we're now, I think, getting closer to a point where we might be introducing that in the field. And one thing my lab is looking at right now is like what happens when you administer these agents under various durations of ischemia. So hopefully that will lead to some interesting results and we will see that kind of technology being used in uh, cryonics in the not so far future. And I, I think it's really important because if you know the Brain Preservation Foundation, they had a series of conventional vitrification electron micrographs. And one thing these images showed was very extreme dehydration. Now, some people in a community hypothesize that you can kind of reverse that so you can kind of reverse the city old structure but clearly it's a lot better if you don't have to produce that that extreme amount of shrinking when you protect the brain so that's something we're pretty excited about i think that's pretty much it about myself and what my company is doing i think one thing i want to close with because that is increasingly a topic that comes up and that was not something that was really important, let's say, 15 years ago. And that is when we nowadays talk about biostasis, we no longer just talk about chronics because there are other approaches. I think the, 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 still the most popular one is what would be called like uh, classical chronics or conservative chronics. I don't know what is a good phrase for it, in which you basically just crowd protect the patient or just the brain and for long-term storage. But now there is a new technology or relatively new technology with LDIG stabilized cryopreservation in which you first use a chemical fixative and then do cryoprotection and go to very low temperature. So that is an option as well nowadays. And as we are speaking right now, the best images of the brain are can be only achieved with that technology so far. So there's a lot of debate like should traditional chronic organizations switch to that technology or are there any drawbacks to that? Are we can we catch up when we open the blood brain barrier to match that kind of like ultra structure? So that's maybe something of interest to talk about. There are like warm methods of biostasis. I think the most uh, obvious one is just to do chemical fixation and then store at either room temperature or just refrigerator temperature. And I think there are a lot of drawbacks in that because, to my knowledge even chemically fixed tissue degrades over time. And since we don't know how long it's going to take, that might not be the best approach. I think a bigger drawback is that if you have an ischemic brain, then it's actually very hard to introduce fixatives in all areas. So you think you're storing a fixed brain long-term, but there are pockets in the brain that are actually added get fixed, and then they kind of decompose pretty quickly. And one advantage of cold is that it can preserve brain structure regardless of the ischemic condition of the brain. There is sometimes a kind of a misunderstanding, I think, that like hyperthermia, like as practiced in uh, emergency medicine, like just pulling someone down with an organ pre preservation solution and using perfusion, that that can really prolong, can be prolonged for a very long time. But, you know, as far as we know, these are procedures you can do maybe, as far as the brain is concerned, for, for, for hours uh, at most at day. So that would, you could not put someone in that state and put them on the machine, at least not now, for like centuries until science catches up to cure whatever their ailment was. And then there is, I think I just mentioned it for completeness sake, uh, you could have a technology that would be complete molecular biostasis and that would be based on uh, a very mature nanotechnology in which nanobots basically enter 
the bloodstream of the patient and lock everything into place. I mentioned it only for completeness sake because we're not, not nearly near here. But it is kind of interesting to mention because it's these very technologies that later we'll have to use to revive pretty much everyone who has been cryopreserved. So, I mean, using this conceptual framework, it's probably going to be interesting to talk about the pros and cons of some of the options that were talked about. And I think that's pretty much it for me. So that puts me about 50 minutes, I think. And uh, thank you. Oh, my God, that was a lot. Thank you so much. You really gave us a really good overview of, you know, what is it, what are current challenges, what are good technologies to look out for. Uh, you know, the one that you mentioned for completeness, you know, I think part of the reason why Foresight is so into molecular nanotechnology is definitely because I think on the very long run, uh, it would be a really good shortcut uh, to solving those issues. And, you know, again, mentioning on the very long run. Okay, great. So next on up, uh, without further ado, I think we should have Emil present and then we just do an open Q&A and everyone can, can just chime in. Just again, another reminder, please collect your questions in the chat and we'll get to them uh, as soon as Emil uh, has done his presentation on Tomorrow by Stasis. Tomorrow by Stasis is, I think, the most exciting game in town right now for fire preservation in Europe. And yeah, if you go on their website, the the sign up, the whole sign up experience is incredibly smooth. And we can talk lots more about that later. I think after the actual session, if people want to sign up, lots to say. I think, uh, and Ingrid, you can do that much better than I. So welcome. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for the introduction, Adolf. Um, yeah, so, so I'm, I'm representing two organizations. One is, as we just mentioned, Tomorrow Biostasis, and the other one is the European Biostasis Foundation. So there's one startup and there's one foundation tackling basically this whole topic from, from A to Z. Um, and maybe to briefly introduce myself, uh, initially. So I'm a medical doctor by training. I studied medicine and cancer research in the past to go into the longevity field. So this was always my plan when, you know, starting when I was, I don't know, 16 or 17 or something like that. I did a bit of a detour over the last couple of years, starting relatively traditional tech companies from data analysis to, to, you know, a, a medical net, medical networks and telemedicine, but always with the goal of going back into this field of longevity. And I, in 2018, then decided that, that now is the time to do, to do, to do that. And at that point, I looked at the longevity field again and looked at the, at the biostasis field again and decided to go into that biostasis field and. Now, as I just mentioned, I'm running these two organizations. Uh, one is based here in Berlin, where I am, and then the European Biostasis Foundation is based in Switzerland with the foundation itself in Basel and the research institute that is currently in construction close to Zurich. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, um, you already see my email on the bottom of the screen, but later on that comes up again. So the only, the only point where I might have some contention with people who are in the, you know, in the more traditional longevity space is not in principle, if that will work, it's just how long it will take until, until, you know, figuratively, you just take the pill and do the treatment every year or every 10 years, and then you live significantly longer than you can. And of course, you already see that happening with health span a bit, right? I mean, the squaring of the curve is already or has been going on and probably will be the easier problem to solve. But when I talk about longevity or life extension, my primary interest is always in maximum lifespan. And, and with that, uh, I'm more than happy to, to discuss later. Um, if anybody just wants to disagree, my main contention is based mostly with the, you know, how long it will take. And here it says many decades, but arguably it will be on the higher side of many decades. So arguably too long for many of us and including myself. And if I'm wrong, 
I'm, I'm going to be super happy, right? So, so I'm, I'm totally fine to be wrong. I just decided that I'd much, much rather err on the right, on the side of caution. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm totally fine if I need to do the large apology tour 20 years down the line, if, if that becomes the case, right? So if, if there's just the pill that I need to take. So, so what, what is biostasis? Of course, Ashwin already introduced the topic quite comprehensively. So I, I plan to take this, this point in order to do this quickly. Right. So it's, it's practically using some amount of cryoprotective agent or an aldehyde stabilization uh, method to make a chemical fixation. And then usually very, very low temperatures somewhere around at least minus 130, minus 140 degrees Celsius, minus. And then, of course, the idea being that some medical diseases that are currently practically, you know, will lead to death, like terminal cancer, end stage heart diseases, whatever it might be, including old age will at some point, arguably in the future, be curable. And then arguably at some point in the future, it will also be possible. What we would currently call, you know, unrecoverable death will at some point in the future, arguably be something that you can fix and then revive these patients. Practically, you could argue it's an insurance policy for the time when the normal health insurance doesn't, doesn't cover it or if the longevity technology doesn't come around in time or should you die before that happens because of course we always need to keep in mind even though if in 20 years down the line you you just just need to take a pill right figuratively speaking to live significantly longer until such a time a lot of people will die and not only old people but also people who are you know just just half a million of half a million children under the age of five die every year due to cancer just cancer right so so even if it comes, this technology comes around for many of us, there's still a lot of value to be gained if you give those people a chance and, and have, have a possibility to, to offer something. Now, of course, this topic historically was always a relatively niche topic, right? There's a couple of thousand people signed up to be cryopreserved should they die any, at any point in the future, right? Now, the, the big difference that we see in this field is that our, in my, in our belief, there's a significantly larger market out there that have, has not been captured, right? And of course, what you see here is, is a customer, customer uh, sentiment study. And of course, so take them with a grain of salt, right? Sentiment doesn't really mean, um, much necessarily, but it gives the indication that there is indeed significantly more interest out there. So this was a study with around three and a half thousand people. Uh, we published it in, 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 in last year um, with around half the data set, um, which was the cleaner data set. And in fact, we asked a lot of people, okay, so what do you, what, what's, your, what's your sentiment towards preservation? And this is one of the stronger, stronger indications if some people are, would be interested to actually be contacted with the cryopreservation organization. And, you know, 25, 24% say, yeah, you know, this is something I definitely want to discuss. And if you ask these questions a bit more, you know, softer, hey, is this something that you would be interested in? And in the US, it goes up to around 30, 35%. In Germany, it stays around 20. And one of the reasons here is this is not exactly general population. This is the internet population in the US. But in Germany, it was a representative study where, where you can see that there's a large percentage of, of the population open to these topics. And again, to note, interest doesn't mean intent. So it's not like that these people are all signing up with us right now, but it gives a good indication that this might indeed be something where you not only, where you not only can build organizations that have a couple of thousand of, of people signed up, but 
rather a couple of hundred thousand. And of course, this is going to be a long path, but by now we're already, I mean, we're smaller. We're not the largest organization yet, but we're by, by a lot, we're, we're growing in, in about a month, we grow half as much as other organizations in the whole year. So, so there seems to be, and in Europe, which of course, traditionally speaking, is always a bit more conservative about these topics, maybe. So there seems to be a significant amount of interest. And now what we do is, is practically offering this whole topic out of, out of one hand, right? As, as one provider, just like how you go to, you know, you, you go to some online to, to Airbnb to get your apartment and have everything out of one hand. You go to us to sign up for cryopreservation. So you literally sign up in a couple of minutes, right? We have an insurance partner. So all the term life insurance, which you, which is most used by most people to fund their cryopreservation contracts. We have a large uh, insurance partner. We can do insurances actually globally with some very limited exception of some countries. But in general, we can sign up people from all over, at least all over Europe and a good amount of other countries as well. One of them is integrated. We're currently now building an emergency app, which will come out in a couple of, of, of weeks so that we know should something go wrong with one of our members so that we can dispatch one of our teams, all integrated into one comprehensive sign-up and management flow. And then, of course, if something should happen to any of our members, then we have medical teams. As we mentioned before, whole body field cryopreservation protection. So basically doing this procedure fully on-site wherever the patient is. For those for that, we have these ambulances. Um, this is here the one that is in Berlin, which is actually just right out of my window, which is equipped for for yeah, no, doing the full operation on-site, doing the full perfusion with cryoprotect agent on-site, and which can be dispatched mostly in Europe, of course, wherever it needs to be. Um, through a partner, we have another one, Amsterdam, and we're going to soon, once the facility is done, we're going to have a third one in Zurich. And of course, should anything happen to some of our members on vacation, then we have flight kits where we just transport the equipment wherever they are. Of course, knowing that that might take a bit longer, which of course is non-ideal, but it's the best that you can do if someone should die during vacation. And of course, statistically, you don't necessarily die. Most people don't die during vacation. Mostly we're currently in Europe. And of course, it's already marked here in the map on new. At some point, you know, the US and especially the Bay Area, of course, is a is an area where we might at some point also be more active or more yeah, be more active there. Now, once the cryopreservation procedure, of course, is done, you need to oh, there's there's one more slide of cryopreservation procedure. So so the parts that you always want to do, right, in, in this procedure, and this is why we have these ambulances. You want to be able to cool down as quick as possible, right? You know, there's a saying in medicine that says, you know. You're only dead if you're warm and dead. And that, that goes double for cryopreservation. So you want to cool down as quick as possible. So you can do all the, the CPS, like, you know, the chest compressions, the, the oxygenation, the medication in there. You can do the whole body perfusion with cryoprotective agent. And then you can cool down to dry ice temperatures, at which temperature you have enough time to then drive down, in our case, to Switzerland, no matter where you are in, in Europe, arguably also in the world. And then Switzerland. The facility in Switzerland takes over for long-term care and long-term storage. Well, until such a time when revival, of course, is possible. And this here, the last, the next slide, um, this is slightly outdated by now. Uh, we're a bit further ahead. This is the facility that we're currently building from scratch, um, purposely, like purpose designed for, for the topic of cryopreservation. 
It will be slightly north of the Zurich airport, so quite well reachable from wherever you are, at least in Europe, but also internationally. Um, one of the searches, of course, is with nonprofit foundations to make sure that, you know, this very long term, you say you have very long term alignment and making sure that there are no financial interests or any other interests that you might, you know, not want to keep people in cryopreservation for whatever reason. And if you haven't thought about this topic for, for a longer period of time, then one of the questions is always, hey, how can you make sure that, you know, cryopreservation is maintained? You know, you don't know how long it will take until revival is possible. So how can you make sure that you can actually cryopreserve someone from a monetary perspective until that point? And, and that works in the following way that um, um, we, for, for cryopreservation, we charge around 200,000 euros, unfortunately, which is you know, relatively expensive. One of the goals of the organization is to bring that cost down over time. But currently, we're at that point. And the reason for that is that around 120,000 euros, around 60% of the overall amount, is being you know, given to this nonprofit foundation. And they invested with around 1% to 2% return of investment above inflation. And then they pay for the maintenance of cryopreservation out of, out, of out of the return. And with that method, you can basically, well, maintain cryopreservation indefinitely and then have these 120,000 euros inflation adjusted in the future to use that money to pay for revival. Right. So this is kind of fundamentally the, 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 the you know, the, the business model, not, not a business model. That, that's the, 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 you know, the financial, the financial planning, how you, how you do that, um, to be, to be, to be sure. Now, of course, um, uh, and this, these are a couple of more pictures, um, how the facility will look for two storage. The storage will be underground. It has a full, a full lab, full operating theater. You know, full, full imaging, uh, imaging facility for quality checks and so on and so on. So everything that you might need, um, to do that procedure with high quality. Now, of course, the idea behind this whole organization is not just to offer this as a, as a service, but the whole idea is that there needs to be still a tremendous amount of research money being put in that whole, into that whole field. And we're taking the following approach, right? We, we come from this fundamental understanding or this fundamental hypothesis that there are significantly more members or potential customers or potential members out there. So we plan to run basically kind of a flywheel circle for, well, it, it, I'll, I'll probably do this for the next couple of decades. So, so I, don't, I don't plan to run any other company apart from that until, well, so the idea here being that you acquire customers here on number one. With that, you invest in research and the goal of research is twofold, right? Make the procedure better and bring the price down. And then with these research results and reduced price and very importantly, better communication of the sole sector, you, you, you increase the value proposition, right? You can now offer better service. It's cheaper. It's better bang for the buck. Um, it's, it's, you, you, you communicate it better. You learn how to communicate this topic so that people who traditionally have not been interested in it or have not known about it, now know about it, think about it, and then consider if this is something that they would like to do. And with that, you get more customers, right, or members. And well, with that, you do more research and then you improve the value proposition and then you run this flywheel. Well, technically speaking, I don't plan to ever stop, right? So, so this is not an organization, very important to say, this is not an organization I want to sell, right, or I will sell. This is not an organization that is there to make investors or me or anybody else primarily rich. This is an organization to make this thing work. 
right? To offer it to, to everybody who can, uh, who wants it, uh, who wants to do it and you know, put the, put the research and R&D money in that needs to be put into this space. Uh, and of course, we're not talking about a couple of millions here, right? We're talking about significantly more money. This is why we're running this organization to do this for the very, very, very long term. So far, this, you have a team of around 12 people in here. Um, not all of them are on the picture. 12 people in Berlin, um, but we're also running the organizations in Basel. And, and well, the, uh, at least I'm more involved in, in building the facility in Zurich. Um, and again, those people are here to make this happen. Last but not least, if anybody is interested in that, in that topic in some capacity, we're raising a seed round right now, which still has a, a couple of, of tickets to be raised, a couple of smaller tickets to be raised. So if anybody is interested or knows someone who's interested to, to put their money down and, and be part of this, this thing, please feel free to reach out. I'm more than happy to talk to you and, and tell you all the details. Then there's still a lot of community building and partner building involved in that sector. So whoever is maybe not necessarily interested or not an investor or doesn't want to put any money down, but is somehow wants to be involved in that topic in some capacity, feel free to reach out as well. Um, we're hiring a good amount of people. And last but not least, of course, if anybody currently lives in Europe or lives in the US, but is around in Europe once in a while or, you know, lives here for, you know, for longer vacations or comes from Europe, then also more than happy if you like to sign up. Um, more than happy to talk to you about this as well. And we're going to do a small round of, of Q&A on that after the talk. Last but not least, I'm stopping my presentation. I think we're, we're moving over to Q&A and discussion. And yeah, thanks a lot for listening and thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Well, lots to discuss, lots to cover here. Before we move into the Q&A, I should note that uh, Emil will be staying on for a little longer for a Tomorrow by Stasis focused Q&A and sign up for those of you who are interested. In addition to that, we will have him likely at our Vision Weekend, our annual member gathering, both in San Francisco and in France. Uh, not both uh, Emil and Not myself. A trap. Oh, but, uh, but someone from there. So if anyone's interested in signing up, in addition to that, um, you know, if you're working in the area, we are going to have Franix Focus Fellowships in the next year. So that's really on tackling the scientific aspects of that. One of them uh, co-sponsored by Emil. So thank you so, so much for that. You're really pushing the scientific airfield uh, lot, lot, lots forward. Before we move to Q&A uh, with folks here, I have uh, three very quick questions that I would love like a rapid fire round uh, with you on, uh, just that we get like the main basis covered. Uh, one of it is, what is the biggest scientific hurdle uh, really the, of getting critics off the ground? So that's for people working uh, and, and wanting to help the, help the entire field along. What should they be focusing on? So what uh, kinds of fellowships and number would you both like to see? I hear really that the preservation time between um, when your heart stops uh, beating to when the first responder can come is a really interesting one. What, what, what's, what are other potential challenges that you, you want to see solved here? What could people make progress on? Yeah. So, so, so my, our point of view. So, so I'm mostly interested, um, not in research that is, you know, Ashwin kind of already mentioned, that I think is one of the points we agree on. So I'm mostly interested in doing stuff that can be implemented into, you know, the bedside. I mean, not really the bedside, but, you know, the clinical practice of cryopreservation tomorrow, right? I, I don't care about cells or that much, right? I care about, you know, what do we need to do to preserve humans? And so, you know, with in a, in a real world situation, right? So so this is mostly what we're what we're interested in funding. You know, ischemic time is is a big issue, um, and and so on. And of course, Ashwin probably has a longer list. And there's a long list of of smaller problems that need to be solved. Okay, 
Yes. So I, I think it's, it's, it, it is to be expected, right? When you're working more on the scientific technical side of chronics to give an answer like, well, if there is this like scientific or technological breakthrough that we can achieve, then will people sign up in mass? But one thing actually with learning is that if you really dig really deep into why people don't want to sign up for chronics, you find more like a uh, very like depth deep-rooted psychological objections. And, and a very important one is that people fear the kind of sort of alienation, being kind of like ejected alone into some kind of unknown future. And having said that, in terms of the scientific and uh, technological breakthroughs, I think we are already there. And that is, I think, a pretty bold statement for me to make. But in terms of like being able to crab preserve in a way that we can infer the original condition of the brain and revive people. I think we're already at that station quite some time ago. I think it's even compatible with what we call a straight freeze, provided there's no ischemia. But I think there are three technologies that I think would be good to put more emphasis on. One is more rapid cooling in the beginning of the procedures, and there's kind of two ways of doing that. One technology is called liquid ventilation, in which you basically use the human lungs as a heat exchanger by pumping in and out a very cold liquid, and that allows you to cool really quick. Another innovation that is already kind of available is intermediate temperature storage, uh, because right now, if you store a cryopreserved patient liquid nitrogen temperature, whether it's whole body or neuro, you will have some degree of fracturing because the vitrification agent solidifies at around minus 130 and uh, we are stored at minus 196. So that causes a lot of thermal stress and, and fracturing. Now, if you're really into like molecular nanotechnology, you might say, like, well, that is not really big of an issue in the bigger scheme of problem. And you're probably right about that. But in terms of promoting and marketing chronics, that is a big deal for people. One other thing is, I think it's really about time that we show recovery of organized brain electricity in a crowd preserve brain. And that's actually something my lab is working on, but it is actually kind of a hard model. It's like most of the challenges are in the modeling there. But I think that would be very powerful because let's say even if there's a lawsuit about chronics, you can say like, well, if a brain is like cooled down really quickly and vitrified, that brain is still capable of function. So a uh, chronics patient should have some kind of legal standing. If it's not the same as normal human beings, you cannot have a person whose uh, brain activity is potentially recoverable treat as someone who is dead. So I think these would be some of the powerful things we can do um, in the next like 10 years or so. Okay, well, that's a pretty concrete shopping list. Thanks a lot. Um, we're staying on the scientific angle just for a second. And I think uh, Alex Bainsev had a good question here. Um, Alex, in case you want to unmute. Hello. Yes. Uh, happy to be here again. I'm Alex Bainsev. I'm a researcher in the anti-Asian field and a biohacker. <laughs> well, that, like I, I was always interested uh, about cryonics, but I have like some I don't know, some concerns, maybe. I don't, I don't know. And uh, here, here is my question. So I've read that there is some, some unpleasant things happening to our proteins during the freezing process, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, if we use cryoprotect, cryoprotectants, cryoprotectors, 
whatever. I don't know how to pronounce them correctly, these words correctly, but you, you got the point. So they uh, usually pull out water outside of cells, right? And water, water molecules, they, uh, they give stability to our proteins. And thus, uh, the dehydration leads to loss of conformation of, of different proteins in, in the cells, right? And then they tend to aggregate and like the, uh, the during the thawing pro- pro- process, uh, cell might lose uh, partially the information stored in this these particular proteins. So cell can become viable again, but due to synthesis of new proteins and the memory that was encoded, presumably in some proteins, it 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 gone. It it has lost. It has been lost. Uh, right. And what about other like damage? Uh, like uh, during freezing, there is. A uh, Ross generation reactive oxygen species, which damage the uh, the DNA. Also, there is some changes, alterations in methylation and epigenetics. So, uh, what do you think, uh, like about the influence of this process on the information content, right, of the of the freeze brain? So, uh, will it significantly alter? the informational content of the brain or not. Okay. Uh, well, I, I probably will take a shot at this first and then uh, Emil. So, um, well, I, I think a lot of depends on how you think memory identity are encoded, right? At, at which level, like ranging from all the way down from atoms to like what, what we'd call the connector. And if you see a lot of work on the neuroanatomical basis of memory, you typically see electromicrographs and you see synapses and axons and connections. Now, if you would take these images and replace them with basically the same in which proteins are uh, denatured, you would not even be able to detect that in electromicrographs. Now, of course, that of course doesn't mean that we should not care about it because clearly if you would reverse the process and a lot of proteins have been negatively affected by these uh, high concentration crack protectants, there will not be any biological viability. And that's why we often draw this distinction in, in, in cryobiology and, and cryobiology as well between structure and, and viability. Now, what I think is really, there are two things I want to say about that. It's like the way like vitrification, like solidification without ice formation is actually really easy to do. I think that might be sometimes a misunderstanding that it was like it took a long time to achieve vitrification. But if you use a high enough concentration of cryoprotectants, you will achieve vitrification. That is actually pretty easy. The real challenge is to use a mixture of cryoprotectants that leaves the the the, the molecular machinery of, of, of the cells, you know, the proteins like in an intact state. And as you indicated yourself, one of the mechanisms, mechanisms in which you can disrupt those features is by having such high glass formers, as we call them, like cryoprotectants at high concentrations are really powerful, that they basically negatively affect the hydration shell of proteins. And we actually know that uh, cryoprotectants can do that at high concentrations. Now, one thing that uh, we found in the cryobiology community, specifically Greg Fahey and Brian Woke at 21st Century Medicine, until recently it was conventional wisdom that like the higher the concentration of the cryoprotectant, the more toxicity, the more 
uh, uh, effects on proteins. But what we actually found is that a high concentration of weaker glass formers that leave the, the, the structure, the biological structure of the cells intact is actually less toxic than a lower concentration of crab protective that is more powerful. That, so that put really conventional wisdom on its head because it was always assumed, assumed that the lower concentration you get away with crab protectants, the better. But these crab protectants are so strong that they actually perturb the hydration shell around proteins. So a lot of the tweaking nowadays in crab protectants is to leave that as much intact. Now, the next thing I, I want to mention that for cryonics, this might be only of limited relevance because I think it's generally agreed in our community that we will not rewarm the patients and then start conducting repairs. Uh, the initial like repairs will be done at cryogenic temperatures. And uh, there's actually uh, a word for that, like uh, cryorobotics. And I actually can make a little announcement, which is nice to do sometimes. So I think by the end of the year, at, at the latest uh, early next year, there will be the first full length, and I'm talking about more than 800 pages, treatment of how to uh, assess the damage of a typical cryo uh, patient at cryogenic temperatures and do some of the initial repairs uh, at cryogenic temperatures. And if and when you've done that, then you can raise that temperature and then you can make final repairs up to the point where everything functions at normal again. And then you initiate revival. So it would never be the case that you would just warm up the patient and all these processes that had been set into motion, ischemia, protein denaturation will, will just continue to unfold. And yeah, you cannot do any kind of meaningful revival. So a lot of the preliminary revival work will be done at cryogenic temperature because even people who are crab preserves under really good conditions that probably will need some kind of molecular modifications, including probably further protection against ice formation. Because if you warm up, there's again a possibility that there's ice formation because it could just be that you were just avoiding it. And then when you warm up, then you have all this ice nucleation that turns into ice formation. So a lot will be done as we uh, envision it now at cryogenic temperatures, and then the revival process will take place. That's super interesting. Thank you for reply, and I'm looking forward. Uh, can't wait to read about this. Uh, yeah. Like this initial repair during the cry, cry. Yeah, there's a brief article on it, and that I will send a link right now. And then, yeah, no one be go be awesome. Like, I'll, I'll yeah. talk about it like later this year, early next year. Okay. Yeah. But like to, just to make it clear, so yeah. like uh, I'm not saying that memory should like exist somewhere in in the like proteins, but also so if we're talking about the synaptic network, like the connectome, right? So yes. the, uh, you 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 don't you need not only information about the like, which, which uh, like axon with which dendrite is like in contact but also you need to know like the type of synapse right and this is determined determined by ion channels that uh, yeah. like uh, exists uh, on the membrane right and they can be affected by the cryoprotectants by the freezing procedure by all by all all of these factors and it's very very interesting whether there are studies that basically looked into into that so what happens with the proteins that basically encode information about the synapse itself 
So if you have some information, I would be glad to read about that. So because yeah, and I'm like, I'm like I don't know. I I haven't made my up my mind about the cry, cryonics yet. I'm like this hesitating, reading reading some articles about that. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. So uh, one thing based on what you were saying now, I think I should mention briefly is like just when I said like a lot of the repair uh, will take place at cryogenic or a high sub-zero temperature, but probably will also be done after making a very detailed scan. And how detailed that scan needs to be is probably one of the main questions about the revival chronic patients. But you can, of course, simulate then the brain like in silico. So even regardless what you think of things, something like substrate independent minds, you might think that's feasible or not, but that actually doesn't matter. You can at least simulate that in a model and see if things working again. So there are all kinds of safeguards I think you can build in to prevent the sort of scenarios where you miss something about how the brain works and then you warm up and it's gone. So, uh, I think, you know, um, your point on, you know, you weren't quite sure whether you'd sign up or not. Like the point is that otherwise you'd have a 0% chance, right, of survival. So even with a, uh, with a small one, I think uh, this is still really better than, than none. And I think it's only increasing over, over time. So um, anyway, uh, that just is an aside. But um, here we had another question from Sergey. Hi, so one small question, one small question, mostly practical. Uh, about... Uh, about uh, let's imagine that uh, we uh, we take a great patient, great patient, a deceased great patient after um, May uh, May 1st after this. Uh, also, we know that uh, there are many blood clot blood clots inside body. What's about uh, anti uh, anti uh, what's about thrombolytic therapy? What's uh, what's about along uh, and all the debates? Uh, Inside uh, a story between between uh, different crisis groups about uh, useless or uh, or efficiency uh, of uh, addition of thrombolytics to cryoprotectants or washing fluids. What do you mean, or what do you have about data? Yeah, I think you got the number. Yeah, good. Um, you meant basically if you can use uh, thrombolytic um, mechanisms for if patients are being only cryopreserved after a long amount of ischemic time. Yeah. So, so, so we're actually starting a research project on that just now to to see if a larger amount of thrombo and actually you use you use thrombolytic uh, agents, um, and and we're just looking into larger amounts, for example, on that. Um, yeah. Because uh, many granites strongly believe that it is really useful, but also many different granites strongly, strongly believe that it's absolutely useless. And actually, this uh, there is no consensus. What's about it? Uh, and also, this is a very long story. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, my question about uh, what to, uh, when we will see solution of, uh, of these uh, debates. I don't know. I don't understand why it's this so controversial uh, area. Yeah, so, so the main problem in this whole field is that, unfortunately, there's very little research money right now. So so all the research projects, there's, there's significantly more research to be done to figure out all these questions. So a lot of the questions have relatively little research or indirect research backing, right? So unfortunately, a lot, lot, lot more research needs to be done in this field. And in, in in the end, this is kind of why we're building this organization, right? So, so it's not necessarily only to do this to do it as a service, but to be able to funnel 
money from the service into research to fund and conduct all these research experiments. Um, and this, of course, is also why there is a, is a relatively limited amount of consensus in this whole, in this whole field, because um, there isn't enough research. Okay, thank you. We have Jean Hubert with a follow-up question to this. Next. Hi, thanks. Thanks uh, both for your talks. Yeah, it was a, a sort of a follow-up question to Alexander's. Uh, you, uh, Ashwin, seem to be favoring cryo uh, repair at cryo temperatures, uh, but you know a lot of the damage would occur as you're warming up. Oh, a lot of the denaturation and, and uh, fallout damage would occur as you warm up tissues again. So it seems like an area where much uh, progress would need to be made in the future in sort of a progressive uh, monitoring of the process or, or, you know, progressive repair or protection against that damage as you warm up. But you don't seem to, um, you seem to be favoring talking about the whole field, what repair would occur at prior temps, prior temperatures while we were warming as the tissue is being warmed up. Is that, is that, you, you don't see, of course, animals in maybe yeah. an important step for an addressable model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was actually started to uh, to answer this question on the chat. So, like a lot of the crack protectant like toxicity actually happens even much earlier, not even warming, but happens when the uh, the crack protectant is introduced to the tissues, and that's why uh, one of the best ways to avoid crack protectant toxicity is to load an organ at low temperatures and limit the exposure time of the crack protectant, and that also means there's a trade off between exposure time and you know, what we call osmotic damage, because if you load the crack protectant way too fast, then you also have damaged the cells. But to get to your point about that kind of damage, the potential for that kind of damage happening again when you kind of warm up. I mean, the idea when I talk, when I said like doing the initial repairs of cryogenic temperatures is of course not that you fix these things and then warm up and then they happen again. And then the idea is, I, I don't think, I, I, I think it's pretty much agreed in our field that there won't be energy revival uh, attempts absent any kind of very mature molecular nanotechnology. So when I say repairs at cryogenic temperatures, that would be the kind of sort of initial assessment and review and stabilization, and uh, like probably like removing the vitrification agent and replacing with something even more potent, and uh, accessing all the vessels and making sure it can be warmed up like safely. But during that process, uh, we would expect molecular like machines to really stabilize tissues in a way that when you warm up, the normal like cryoprotectant uh, mechanisms of cryoprotectant uh, injury and toxicity would not happen. So it's not like you just warm up like we would warm today. It would be very controlled molecular medicine-based warm-up. Now, that is a luxury we probably have in cryonics. If you talk about conventional organ preservation, those people don't have that, right? So if you preserve a kidney for organ transplants today, you're not talking about molecular nanomedicine in that process. You have to reduce protecting toxicity basically to zero and warm up fast enough that any of these mechanisms don't kick in. So I think the best way I can say it, like we, we aim for that ideal in cryonics, but 
one advantage we have is that we are not uh, required to do any kind of warm-up before we have the sort of molecular machinery to hold things really stately into place. And uh, I wish, you know, I, I could kind of quote this share from that upcoming book because it goes, you know, in hundreds of pages about a lot of specific molecular uh, 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 inhibition strategies during the warm-up process that prevents these kind of processes from unfolding. But again, for conventional organ preservation, all these things, of course, not working. And that's why perfecting normal organ preservation, like for the heart or the kidney, is very hard because you have to get all of these things completely right right now at uh, the time we live today to, to do reverse organ cryopreservation. Okay, thank you so much. I think uh, in the interest of time, we're now at the hour. We will switch uh, briefly to uh, more bio-focused discussion. It's a little bit more for those people who are actually interested in signing up to get a little bit more um, out of that discussion. And then for everyone else who still has scientific questions or just in little sociology questions on like, you know, what happens uh, with my memories and so forth, I am very welcome to stay on. I'm clearly happy to stay on for as long as the others are too, so that we get through all of the questions because there's definitely a topic that isn't enough talked about. Okay, getting uh, for a little bit, a little bit more practical. Uh, Emil, you had lots of questions here on the, uh, I guess, like general sign-up procedures for tomorrow bio in Europe. One question was from Christine. Christine, if you're here, uh, feel free to unmute yourself and ask away. Hi, um, I had a quick question. Actually, it's for both groups, which is um, I'm signed up with Alcor, but I visit Europe. And it would make some sense to me if eventually the two groups could make some kind of reciprocal arrangement, at least covering the U.S. and Europe. Is there any discussion of that or is it just too early? Uh, so, so, so we are super open to collaborate with with everybody and anybody. Sometimes it, more established organizations um, have more difficult decision-making processes than we do. Um, not only that, I think that's true for all of them, and we're, we're talking to all of them. So, so we're generally very open to it, but it might take a, 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 a bit amount of time until any of that comes about. Okay. I think I can I can briefly comment on as well as a, as a quasi Alcor official. It's certainly the case that I think it has been formally recognized it would be a good thing if Alcor and and these guys could something in place, but that usually doesn't tend to be easy. But this is the first time I think I can say from an Alcor's perspective where there is an initiative in Europe that we really respect and that we think could be fruitful for and. I mean, there might be some time where Emil has members like in the United States, and then it will be also in his interest, of course, for Elcor maybe to assist in his case one way or another. Or there might be so many cases going on that we just need each other regardless of the location. So uh, yeah. I, I'm pretty think, optimistic that these talks will keep moving forward and, and something uh, will come out of that. I want to say one thing uh, in addition to that. It's, it's not the case, though, that absent of that, as it is often a misunderstanding that most people die in sort of like a really rapid way. And, but most people die in pretty like prolonged, like agonal, uh, fates. And then wherever you are, unless it's a country with a very poor medical infrastructure, Elcor will deploy. Elcor is an international organization. And now with the technology of field crime protection, there doesn't necessarily have to be a difference in quality if you are like far away or close. So I think that's not a thing I, I should mention. Great. Lovely. Next one up, we have Anton with a pretty 
uh, practical question, Anton, if you can unmute yourself, because one thing from talking with Emil that I was super impressed by was their way of getting around the potential uh, challenges uh, with val with relatives that some people may encounter. So Anton, if you want to unmute yourself. Yeah. Uh, hello, everybody. So um, uh, my question is the following. is that uh, after a person died, and uh, especially for more or less non-old people like us, like students, or these people, it sometimes happens very rapidly, and uh, um, there is a short window. There are often the hostile relatives or morgues who reject to give the body. And uh, what I witnessed at least when I was living in Ukraine, and there were prior nations there by prior rules because nothing else existed, is that there is like a mechanism that something happens. They called up I any mean, local edge flood community to help uh, even before uh, the representative of prior was, uh, will uh, be in place. And this was, and this actually saved some time. And my question, do you plan to establish connections with uh, local communities in different European cities to shorten uh, the reaction time? And yet, yeah. uh, have you done something about this? Yeah, so, so absolutely. So, so our model in that regard is that there are parts that need to be done fast and there are parts that are complex and need to be done professionally, right? So, so it's, it's not realistic currently, at least in Europe, that local teams can do the whole procedure. So this is, we're, we're far from that. But, um, of course, as I said before, um, you know, cooling is the most important thing. And cooling initially can be relatively simple. Um, you know, you just need ice and, and you need a chest thumper. And, you know, it, it's relatively doable with a, with a local team. So um, the idea definitely is that if there are local teams that have some level of organizational structure, that you then collaborate with them, especially for regions that are farther away from where we are. So think the north of you know, the Nordics and the south of Italy and Spain and Portugal and so on. So in these regions, um, um, we're, we're in contact and talking to organizations and support local organizations. So um, that is always part of the, the story. Uh, and then, of course, later on, uh, we plan to have local teams there once they become, um, well, logistically viable uh, when you have a certain amount of members in these regions. Uh, one also very practical question from my end is that, you know, one thing that I'm super impressed by is on your website, it's such a smooth process. You know, you really, there's a few forms you click, you click through a few button and it really guides you along in a really like a uh, handholdy way, which I think uh, is, right. is, is really appreciated. So could you talk a little bit about like what someone would expect if they were interested in signing up? You know, what is like the timelines there? What is about uh, life insurance? You know, uh, is there an app? I think you mentioned there may be an app or something. Not yet, but uh, soon, yeah. But eventually, so could you talk a little bit more about the practicalities of signing up and like, uh, you know, the perks that one gets? Right. So, so first of all, from anecdotically, my signing up process, and I know from a couple of friends who've signed up with, with existing organizations, it's a tedious thing to do. Right. And, and my example is always, well, cryopreservation is the best one of those. It's, it's a great example for things that are important, but not urgent. Right. So you might as well do it in a month or a year or whatever. Right. So, um, one of the things that we wanted to do is make the sign up process as simple, as streamlined as anyhow possible. Right. So, so signing up with us basically has three big parts. Right. First, you just sign up with your email address, your telephone number. 
your your address, um, age, whatever, and with your credit card, PayPal, or direct debit, right? Once you've done that, you become basically, um, a, well, kind of a member with us. Then we automatically send you, for digital signing, we send you a biostasis contract that you can sign, right? This includes a body donation contract, and a body donation agreement, and all of the parts that make your cryopreservation contract valid. You can sign it on your iPad. And then last but not least, once that is done, and if you should have chosen to use our insurance partner, um, it's just an, it's just an option. You can t- use any insurance you want, but should you use ours, then we send you, um, basically an insurance questionnaire, which is the, the, the typical medical questions for, for term life insurance, right? And then once you've signed that, which you can also do digitally, then the insurance approves you after usually, you know, a couple of days, depending on your pre-existing conditions, should you have any. And then the only thing that we require afterwards is we would advise you to do everything in a last will as well. And we advise you to add a patient advance directive. Um, and that whole process, like your work is, I mean, if you have a long, long list of pre-existing conditions, okay, it might take a bit longer, but usually people in, in who are relatively young, you can do it, you know, in, in, in 20 minutes or so, right? Or 25 minutes, the whole process. And, um, Soon, you will also be able to do it via app, um, but the app primarily will be initially there for do, to do fast emergency detection so that we know faster if something is, is you know, if something is wrong with you. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the process. And, and by the way, and the idea, of course, with our own insurance partner, maybe as a small point, is that so it, with our insurance, we're the policyholder. Right. So we separated who, who owns the policy and who's the insured person. And the reason for that is that historically there have been a couple of cases where next of kin tried to get the money from the insurance. In our case, our answer would be, what do you mean? What's insurance? Like you have the, the, the patient who died doesn't have insurance. We hold their insurance, but they're the insured person. So you don't have this problem that anybody has any incentive to not have that person cry preserved. Uh, but rather have the insurance paid out as part of the inheritance. Yeah. Okay. Well, so then why, um, I guess there's a question that I think that we also asked at our uh, previous event in Europe. One of the questions there was uh, how many people are interested in longevity? Almost everyone raised their hand. The next question was how many people are signed up to Chronix? And very few people raised, raised their hand, at least before the meeting. I don't know, Alison, I, I can't help you yeah, anymore, but I don't know if that's me. Yeah, her signal's breaking out. I'm not sure. Yeah, right. Uh, so, so maybe until Alison comes back, so, so I, I don't know if that was actually the question, but so that, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge, uh, oh, Alice, go ahead. Yeah, my question was, let's see how my connection goes, but my question was, uh, given the fact of how many people are interested in longevity, how why are so few people signed up? You know, I think we once talked about this difference between, uh, you know, thinking about death, thinking that you won't have to die, and thinking about death, actually accepting that you may have to at least pass in our terms uh, before being vitrified. There is another psychological, I think, hurdle to that. So why do you think that is? And if someone is now skeptical and inherently feels uh, opposed to this whole process still, uh, you know, how can you kind of take them by the hand and then just uh, yeah, give them a little bit more 
uh, security and, uh, and that this may actually be a good thing to consider. Yeah, so, so I think I think that the biggest problem is not necessarily about people having any you know big problems with the effect of cryopreservation. I think it's unfortunately most humans are very good at putting stuff off that is important but not urgent. It unfortunately, like you know, this this idea usually people take care of what's urgent and important and what's not important and urgent. And so, so I think in cryopreservation is the the, the greatest example for that. Right, everybody here probably in the call feels relatively healthy, relatively young. So you might just do it next year. You might do it in 10 years. You might do it, well, you know, in 20 years, right? And so I think, I think the idea here is that, um, um, you know, my, my ideal cryopreservation organization is like this Amazon one-click buy, where you just click and then you sign up, right? And everything is done. Of course, that's not really possible. So I think the, the, the most that we can do, we can do, we can help with any, we can take as much pain out of the system as we add anyhow can. And then try to people, um, you know, try to get them to jump over this last hurdle of just, you know, taking, taking, you know, the next Saturday morning. And they keep getting around those little nephews to me. Or, or uh, net reels. There's some background noise. Um, yeah, well, it's down. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the, um, that's, that's the idea, I think, fundamentally of why a lot of people don't sign up in, in time. Um there are always a couple of questions of, you know, being potentially, um, you know, does it really work? And then, of course, I can say, well, I, 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 no, everything I can say is almost speculation. But then again, if fundamentally you think the value proposition of living longer or living in the future is worth it, then the only consideration you have, is it worth, you know, the, 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 the bit of money now and then potentially a bit more money in the future? Right. And hopefully at that time, we will have already brought down costs significantly. And so, so the idea is, you know, is, is a month of, se- month of protection with an insurance worth 50 bucks a month? Right. So, so this is, I think, the, 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 the closest thing. And we're, we're trying to find these people who have thought about this topic for a long time and then said, Hey, we made it simple. We helped. Now, now I just do it next week. Um, yeah. If I may, if I may briefly. Way in further on what what Emil said. One one very remarkable thing I've seen in our community is that uh, um, you would think you want people to get to the point where they say I'm really interested in this, right? Of course, but the the gap still between people being interested and actually doing it is formidable. Often, I mean, there are you can find online some very strong pro cryonics articles by people who wrote like, "Oh, this is the most sensible thing to do." And then you ask them, like some of them actually really popular people. Some of these art, some of these articles are actually disreputed in our community as pro chronics articles. And you ask these people themselves, like, well, have you made your chronics arrangements? I'm like, nah, nah, nah. So that gap even between being interested and executing it is like, is really wide. And even making it easy, which of course is very important, what Amy was doing, even then. And it's really kind of an enigma why that is to kind of pull that, that, that trigger. I think. Uh, Max Moore once introduced the the phrase cryocrastination for that phenomenon. <laughs> Even yeah. though it's stupid because your life insurance is better when you sign up earlier too. So there's no reason to cryocrastinate from economic needs. Um, okay, uh, Adam, your question next. Awesome. Uh, so uh, thank you for that. I, I had this idea around bundling. So w- what if you bundle the cryopreservation with a type of insurance that could cover uh, longevity therapeutics that may come out in somebody's lifetime. 
So one of the concerns that Free Willy has brought up is, oh, well, you know, this is going to be for billionaires only. And most people won't be able to afford these. So what if you framed it as, hey, this is insurance to actually pay for the therapeutics that may come out. So you can definitely afford them no matter what. Oh, and by the way, footnote, we'll also cryopreserve you if that course fails. Yeah, of course. I mean, currently, unfortunately, you can't do that, right? Because currently, of course, we use standard term or whole life or or like standard life insurances, right? So um, it's not like this is not a specific cryopreservation insurance, right? But later on, um, I mean, it's on our long-term roadmap that if at some point and when we have these, you know, five-figure, low six-figure amounts of, of members and even a bit earlier that um, we would find a reinsurance and build our own insurance for that, right? So, and at that point, you can build these more complex potential products. Um, if, of course, you convince the reinsurance that there you have some risk model of how expensive these uh, longevity treatments will be in the future, right? And by the way, that's, yeah, that's a great answer. I appreciate that. Let me just tie something else into it, uh, just in the context of bundling. Do you do any bundling today with any other services, like when people create their will or do anything like that? Uh, no, not yet, but this is potentially an idea that, you know, some stuff you can add on. Um, um, yeah, so that will be, that will be something that will, that will come up at some point. All right. Lovely. Uh, we have Aaron's question next. Hey, um, so how does, have you guys put organ vitrification in with your strategy at all? Does that fit in with what you guys are trying to do? Um, yes. So, so, um, it, it, it's just a, so, so first of all, yes. So this is something that might come out later on that we're going to do something that space, but for the time being, um, fr from a focus standpoint, our focus is always on the brain, right? So, so all the other organs, if you need so like a different cryoprotective agent, or, you know, you have, you don't have blood brain barriers that you don't need to take, that you need to take care of. So we will always focus on the brain, but if something comes about that can be done for for uh, for organ preservation in regards to organ biobanking, for example, then this would be something that might be that might be a, you know, a subsidiary or or a spin-off or something like that. But focus is is not on on organs. Okay, then we have Chris Kelson next. Thanks, Alison. Um, you know. I'm thinking back to the late 70s when I attended and like Tahoe, there would be a dozen people there. Greg Fahey and Michael Darwin got up and talked about cutting off the heads of uh, Jew and Shepherds and what they could recover. And uh, we were thinking, yeah, this is nowhere near, you know, ready to go. And um, Ralph Merkel got up, a very interesting character, and he gave a pretty convincing vision of the science of the future and nanotech. And we started thinking some decades in the future, maybe this would work. One, and I think you've, you guys have come a long, long way in terms of how to do cryopreservation. And um, I'm, I'm talking to Emil a bit about the marketing side here. The, that part of the presentation is very effective. But I wouldn't downplay the uh, gap in, well, where in the heck are memories stored? How are they encoded? You know, where are our cognitive functions are stored and encoded? emotions, personality, et cetera. So I think it would help the marketing story to have, even if it's drawing on research from the researchers, um, you know, a uh, state-of-the-art, state-of-those-arts discussion, because that's advanced a bit, but, you know, those questions are still unanswered. 
Thank you. Yeah. And, 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 and you're not wrong. Like, so, so there's a, a tremendous amount of research that still needs to be done. So, so, so we decided for the path forward that what we went for, um, um, that, that, you know, to fund this research, we always thought you can rely on two things, right? You can either rely on some very wealthy people donating money to do that research or you, you, you sell in quotation marks a product being well aware that you cannot currently fully say with what probability or how much it is, how, how likely it is that it will work. But then, um, as long as you can ensure informed consent and all of our, um, so with everybody who signs up, we have a, we have a personal call to make sure that they fully understand that this is, you know, that they're buying a chance. Um, and then you use that money to, to fund the research that you need to do to increase the chance and understand better how memory is encoded and personality and so on and how to preserve that better. Lovely. We have a few more. I will just shoot away with questions. I'll be the mind. Gail, we had another question, which was insurance related. Right. Um, so I like the work that you guys are doing uh, in terms of uh, marketing, in terms of smoothing the insurance process, the application process, making it all easier. Um, one of over time, as I've talked with a variety of people about why they've been procrastinating, one of the things that's come up is when you do have people who've got a family, they bring up the fact that they now have to get insurance policies on three, four, five, six people. The choice becomes, irrational as this is, the choice becomes, well, since I can't insure everybody, I will insure no one. But the probabilities that... um so it's both the insurance, but also then the the uh, annual fees, etc. Um, so the the odds that you're going to lose a family of four or five all at once are relatively low. I mean, the real risks are attendant on on you know the people with more advanced age. Um, are you doing anything both from the insurance perspective, but also? the uh, marketing and business perspective of taking some kind of a family or group orientation. And I bring it up both for the smoothing issues that uh, mm -hmm. you've, that you've been talking about here, which are completely on point, but also addressing the question of, and who is there when I get revived? What kind of universe am I stepping into? So you notice that the Chinese based cryonics firm is doing a um, uh, a method of saying, this is the family doer, okay? So now what's happening is you've automatically got a group. You are reuniting with your family. It also, by the way, lifts this um, this risk question of like, I may or may not want to spend uh, dollars on myself today for my insurance policy, but I will definitely insure my other family members because, I need to be looking after them. So have you thought about any of these from an insurance, a marketing, a positioning perspective of doing family or group? Yeah. So so we do we do family, you know, packages or family sign up deals or whatever you want to call it, um, on our membership fee. So that part goes to us, not to the insurance. For the insurance, um, we're using these standard insurance, you know, providers. 
um, it's there, there, at least with the insurance that we're working with, this just doesn't exist. There is no, you know, you can't sign up multiple people at the same time and then some kind of get a, get a discount deal. And of course, with term life insurance, which most people at least here in Europe use, and that indeed is also quite difficult. With whole life, which is basically a savings plan, right? So with that, it's, it's significantly easier. You can just say, Hey, we save money. And then whoever dies first, um, gets a certain amount of money out of that, out of that bucket. Right. So, um, I think the core of this whole endeavor is that, um, ideally you would bring down cost at some point and, you know, significantly by scale. And with that, then you can make it easier also for a family of five, for example, to sign up. Um, without, you know, needing to go into seven figure amounts. Um, so I think it's a combination. So I think it makes sense to, to bring costs down and solve it that way. And on the other way, uh, in the other, on the other hand, um, try to later on have, um, kind of, you know, products that, 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 that you design that are tight tailor made that are kind of life insurances, but that are tailor made, um, for the topic of, of cryopreservation. Um, I think this makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, can I ask one more question, which goes back to um, your earlier mention of the survey that you ran? What were the demographics? Right. Yeah. What were the demographics on that survey? What was the survey size? And what kind of group did you target? Were these already, was this general public in some way, or was it a selected community where you were looking at people who are already reading about cryonics or involved right. in extension? So, so there, are, there are two parts. So there's a, there's a U.S. part and there's a Germany part. The Germany part is representative. So with that, we use the market uh, research organization where, where it's representative. Um, that the, the, the survey size, the sample size in Germany, though, is a bit small. It's a couple of hundred people. Whereas in the U.S., we have three and a half thousand people. Um, and there is internet population. So it's, it's, we recruited online. So it's not a, it's not a purely representative sample. So we have an overrepresentation of urban um, urban cities. Um, we have uh, age age is relatively representative of the United States, as is income. Um, overrepresentation of people who are uh, who have high internet affinity. So, like stating, I have you know internet, or I, I'm a very I don't know how we phrase the question, but high internet affinity. If you like, um, the study is published in uh, in um, PLOS one. Um, under uh, Gillette et al. I, I'll put it in here. I'll put the link in, um, okay. where you can see the whole the demographics of how the breakdown of, so, of, of that is. So it's not fully representative, but it's not far from that either. All right. Thank you. Um, next one up, uh, I have one more question, which is, you know, before we move, because we're almost now at the half hour and later, but I have one question for both of you, um, which is, you know, what is the, you know, number one common myth? Like, what's the one thing that you want people to take away from this that you want to bust about brown eggs that you think is unhelpful? Um, uh, and then, uh, and, and then I have one, one, one final question, which I always close the session with, which about just, uh, what, what are, you know, explains and how can we help? But first, let's do the myth busting one. Yeah. Actually, I want to just bounce back something you said earlier. I think it's, much easier to put life insurance in place if you're younger and you're healthy. So if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I have still this concern or I don't know what organization, then at least put life insurance in place or craft a document that says, I want to be crowd preserved if you're critically ill. Because if that moment arises, then you can make that decision. Don't like delay these things. We've seen this happening over and over again. So 
please, if, if you've been participating in this, no matter um, your reservations about specifics, at least put a sort of structure in place that allows you to take advantage when the time comes. I think that is like really the sort of takeaway thing, like I want to say. Yeah, so, so, so um, I mean, there's, I don't know what the biggest myth is. I think one of the biggest myths, and maybe not in this group, is that it's unaffordable for a lot of people, right? So people think, you know, you need to wire 200,000 US dollars tomorrow and you would not be able to afford that or don't want to afford it, right? So we don't want anybody to pass 10,000 euros because we need to hold it in trustor accounts. Everything is just annoying. Um, doing it with life insurance, I think, I think the biggest, the biggest consideration is, is it, or the biggest thing that people need to think about, is it, is it worth to themselves to pay, you know, this, this 50, 50 bucks a month? Uh, and, and it's not, it's not unaffordable. Of course, being well aware that this is the yeah, term life insurance. But then again, most people, when they're older, they have significantly more net worth at that point. Um, um, and as I said, hopefully at that point, we will have made it, um, cheaper. So it's not something that only, you know, the millionaires and billionaires can afford. Um, it is indeed to a degree accessible to almost everybody. I, I think when it comes to myths, I, I want to say briefly, because I was not sure it was message or myths, but being asked for is like, I think one thing, myth actually is that it happens a lot that people who really want to be crack preserved in the end don't have money for it. But what we've seen in our field, and I've studied this issue actually quite carefully, if someone really wants to be crack preserved and there is no funding, the community usually organizes a public fundraiser. And from what I've seen, these almost are invariably favorable. I mean, you may not end up with the organization that you want, or it might be a brain-only crowd preservation or something. Of course, I'm not saying that you should not make any arrangements so you can get a free ride on this really great behavior in our community. But what I've seen actually, when people really want to be uh, signed up, and for some reason their arrangements fell through or whatever, uh, the community has put on a real effort to crowd preserve these people. So... I think it's 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 even a stronger myth in that sense that Quranis is expensive because we've always stepped up actually to take care of people who really wanted to. I mean, there have been several anti-aging rejuvenation researchers in our field who basically got offered free cryopreservation. Unfortunately, some of them turned them down, but uh, th this happens all the time. Yeah, I can't reiterate. I think the point on you know signing up early. I think a point was made in the chat that sometimes. It's already uh, very expensive for your parents, and that's true. What I did, though, I think usually the, uh, when my family was, I guess, quite, um, you know, uh, not super bought into cryo. Let's put it, uh, let's put it this way. And I just wished for my birthday uh, that they sign up. They thought it was, you know, quite a complicated process, which it was because I'm in the US, they're in Europe, and so forth. But now with tomorrow by stasis, I'll do a second round, and I already look into the life insurance with them. So I think, you know, like doing things early. Uh, and that's why I think it's it's really good that Tomorrow Biases has a really, uh, uh, I guess, seamless uh, experience, a seamless customer experience there, because I remember that was difficult to figure out, especially if you're in different countries and so forth. So uh, anyway, I think just like first, maybe as a first uh, procedure, reading the Wait But Why article on why Chronics makes sense, or even the uh, the stuff that uh, you both have put out on this. Uh, and then if you're interested and curious, you know, just visiting uh, the websites, the respective websites and just seeing uh, there's lots of different curious Q&As on there. Uh, that's usually a good first step. Uh, one final question that I have for both of you, which I we always close those meetings with is 
what can this group do uh, to help your current efforts along? So what's next, you know, for uh, both of your individual efforts in the next, you know, let's say months, two years? And then also what could this group uh, possibly do to help out? So just to reiterate that always in the final minutes to make it really crisp, that would be very useful. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I think if it was like a year ago, I, I would have said like, you know, put this really strong emphasis on the development and acceleration of molecular medicine, uh, nanomedicine, right? Uh, because uh, I think the two things are really tied, even if we perfect crab preservation, we need some kind of molecular technologies to revive people. Um, but as I said earlier, the good news is we will have a very comprehensive work coming out uh, later this year, early this year, about like molecular repair of chronic patients. But one thing that is going to be important, and it's kind of a sneak peek in that work, there will be, uh, I think it's, it's like 20 or 50 pages of specific research questions that will need to be addressed to make this happen. And it would be really interesting to focus on some of these research questions and, you know, get new guests out or see if, you know, small like funds can be raised for these specific areas that need to be resolved to make this thing like truly happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so for us, it's mostly um, um, anybody and everybody who is either interested themselves or knows anybody who's interested either to work in that space, to collaborate in that space or whatever. Please, please contact us. Please reach out. Um, and last but not least, of course, anybody who's interested to either donate to research in that field or, as I said, research is really the, the big, big lacking field here. So, um, or, of course, also to Tomorrow Biosciences itself as an organization, um, then more than happy to, to, to discuss that. Um, in general, for us, it's interesting to be involved with anybody who wants to, you know, be, 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 um, you know, somehow engage with this topic and somehow, um, be, be involved in that topic. So um, in any capacity, we're more than happy to talk about it. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date. Or visit foresight.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>